This week, Purdue Pharma files for Chapter 11 with settlement construct with 24 states. McDermott scares markets with hiring of Alex Partners and Evercore and ends week disclosing, quote, unsolicited approaches for its tech business. Certain of Frontier's note holder groups consolidate ahead of discussions with company. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Alex Brosman, legal analyst for Reorg in New York. And I'm reporter Connor Skelding. Later this episode, our Emerging Markets team here will discuss Chilean salmon farmer Nova Austral, Brazilian telecom company Oi, and Argentine province Chubut. It's Sunday, September 22nd. Purdue filed for Chapter 11 relief in the Southern District of New York last Sunday night, announcing its goal to, quote, finalize and implement a settlement that would provide, quote, more than $10 billion of value to address the opioid crisis. According to the debtors, the settlement is supported by 24 state attorneys general, analogous officials from five U.S. territories, the plaintiff's executive committee in the multi-district litigation, and co-lead counsel in the MDL, quote, which comprises attorneys at law firms that collectively represent over 1,000 counties, municipalities, Native American tribes, individuals, and third-party payers. According to the Purdue debtors, the settlement, quote, would transfer the entirety of Purdue's value to a post-emergence vehicle for the benefit of claimants and the American public, while continued litigation would only serve to divert massive resources that could otherwise benefit the American people to lawyers and professionals. The debtors have no funded debt, and their first-day motions requested relief that was largely aimed at continuing ordinary operations. Purdue receives all requested relief at their first-day hearing before Judge Robert Drain last Tuesday. Marshall Hubner of Davis Polk, representing the Purdue debtors, highlighted during the first day hearing that, quote, more than 85% of the 2,600 lawsuits against the debtors were brought by governmental plaintiffs. He emphasized the need to handle the litigation in an organized fashion, saying that litigation, quote, drains millions of dollars of estate value every single week. The goal, said Hubner, is to facilitate Purdue's smooth transition into Chapter 11 and minimize value loss and operational disruption. Two ad hoc committees of litigation claimants appeared at Tuesday's hearing. One, represented by Kramer Levin, Brown, Rudnick, Otterberg, and Gilbert, supports Purdue's proposed settlement, and the other ad hoc committee does not. Andrew Troop of Pillsbury, representing the New York Attorney General, made remarks on behalf of the second non-supporting ad hoc group. In addition, Kevin McClay of Kaplan and Drysdale appeared on behalf of a, quote, multi-state group of approximately 400 governmental entities, McClay said that the group is not yet in the, quote, support camp for the settlement and that his clients are still getting up to speed. Hubner, speaking for the debtors, remarked that the, quote, firm and immovable position of the office of the U.S. trustee is that governmental plaintiffs are not eligible to serve on an official committee in a Chapter 11 case. David Nachman from the New York Attorney General's office noted that, quote, the AGs do talk to each other. He said that the attorneys general may have common views on issues in the case going forward, as well as others on which they may disagree, quote, pointedly. Nachman remarked that he expects the ad hoc committee that does not support the settlement to conduct, quote, vigorous due diligence of the so-called independent committee, as well as potential claims, such as fraudulent conveyance claims that New York has asserted. Eli Vonnegut of Davis Polk 
presented the debtor's employee wages motion at the hearing. Paul Schwartzberg from the Office of the U.S. Trustee opposed certain provisions in that proposed order, focusing on the debtor's request to indemnify employees and cover their legal fees in connection with the opioid lawsuits. The first-day paper said that the debtors expect these costs to total approximately $1.5 million per month at the outset of the bankruptcy case. In response, Vonnegut emphasized the importance of the advancement of legal fees to employee morale and pointed out that payments to employees must be approved by the Special Committee of the Board. After hearing the U.S. Trustee's remarks, Judge Drain ultimately said that he would enter the proposed order, including the indemnification provision. He noted that the Purdue bankruptcy is highly unusual and found that the proposed relief is justified under the circumstances. Last Wednesday, the Purdue debtors filed an adversary complaint seeking to extend the automatic stay in their bankruptcy cases to halt all non-state actions by government agencies and individual claimants against the debtors and, quote, related parties, including Sackler family members. The debtors assert that enjoining actions against third parties, such as the Sacklers, would relieve, quote, the endless, relentless pressure on the business and its employees resulting from the, quote, race to the courthouse in which plaintiffs attempt ever more creative ways to jump ahead of one another. The debtors also suggest that, that if the stay is not entered, the Sacklers may withdraw from the settlement. Quote, if forced to bear the risk of adverse money judgments, the debtors say in their supporting memorandum, quote, the related parties may be unwilling or unable to make the billions of dollars of contributions contemplated by the settlement structure. McDermott International Securities completed a volatile week with the announcement of, quote, unsolicited approaches for its technology business, Lummis. McDermott's stock fell from 588 on Tuesday to close at 157 on Thursday before recovering partially to 194 as of Friday at 3.37 p.m. Eastern Time, following reports that the company hired financial advisors Evercore and Alex Partners, according to sources. The company's bonds fell from 69 on Tuesday to close at 16.5 on Thursday and recovered 15 to 20 points into the 30s, according to Trace. On Wednesday, Reorg reported that McDermott hired Evercore and Alex Partners as financial advisors to help address its balance sheet after indicating proceeds from asset sales and full-year cash flow would be lower than previously guided. The company's $1.3 billion, 10.625% notes due May 2024 traded down over 35 points to 33 on the day, according to Trace, while the term loan dropped over 10 points from the previous day's levels to 80.83. The company issued a press release downplaying the news, noting that it, quote, routinely hires external advisors to evaluate opportunities for the company. Reorg later reported that a group of term lenders to the company's $2.2 billion L plus 500 term loan due May 2025 is working with Jones Day as legal advisor. On Friday, McDermott announced it received, quote, unsolicited approaches to acquire all or part of Loomis technology with valuation exceeding $2.5 billion. The release stated that, quote, based on the receipt of these approaches, McDermott is exploring strategic alternatives to unlock the value of Loomis technology while maintaining the strategic rationale of engineering, procurement, and construction pull-through. The release also confirmed the retention of Evercore as lead advisor on the strategic alternatives process for the business. 
The $2.5 billion valuation is at the high end of a range of previously disclosed bids by Chicago Virgin Iron after the company ran a sale process for the segment in 2017 prior to its merger with McDermott in May 2018. It was quite a busy week at Reorg, and here are a few of the other things uh, we were watching. First, in court, PG&E's official committee of tort claimants and the ad hoc committee of senior note holders filed a motion seeking to terminate the exclusivity of the debtors and included a term sheet providing for an alternative plan construct, the cornerstone of which would create a standalone fire claims trust capitalized with $24 billion in cash and equity of the reorganized PG&E. Judge Marvin Isger denied Sanchez Energy's proposed debtor-in-possession financing, stating that the debtors failed to meet the burden of showing that the financing is justified under the circumstances. And, out of court, Ultra Petroleum said that after amending its revolving credit facility, which reduced the borrowing base to $1.175 billion, the company would suspend drilling in the Pinedale, quote, while natural gas pricing remains near multi-year lows and preserve its highest value inventory for future development locations to be developed under more favorable commodity pricing conditions. The amendment also provides the ability for the company to repurchase junior indebtedness, including borrowings under the company's term loan, second lien notes, and unsecured notes following the occurrence of certain events. Reorg also learns that following the company's payment of over $300 million in interest, Frontier Communications, through its financial advisor Evercore, has begun reaching out to bondholders across its capital structure in an effort to consolidate unsecured holdings into one group that it can negotiate with for a balance sheet restructuring. Reorg also learns that Mallinckrodt's term lenders have selected Evercore as their financial advisor. EP Energy last Monday announced that it entered into a forbearance agreement with 70% of its 8% secured notes due 2025 as the company failed to pay the $40 million of interest due within the applicable grace period. High Ridge Brand skipped an $11 million coupon payment on its unsecured notes due 2025 and entered into a 30-day grace period. Following reports that California Resources hired a restructuring advisor, the California-based ENP said that it is, quote, not considering restructuring or hiring advisors for this purpose, and instead said that the company is, quote, actively looking at asset sales, royalty monetizations, and other transactions similar to those we have done in the past to help us delever. Vivint Smart Home announced that it would merge with special purpose acquisition company Mosaic Acquisition Corp. at an agreed enterprise value of $5.6 billion. Following the merger, Blackstone and other existing investors of Vivint are expected to own approximately 78% of the outstanding shares, and the merger will result in $690 million of net cash proceeds at closing, which are expected to be used for working capital and general corporate purposes, including to pay down a portion of existing Vivint debt. On the island of Puerto Rico on Wednesday, the U.S. House Appropriations Committee introduced a continuing resolution bill to fund the federal government through November 21st that extends through that time period the current 100% federal medical assistance percentage in the Medicaid program for Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and, and other territories. While the measure contains no new Medicaid funding for the territories, it allows the territories to use 100% of their remaining Medicaid funding. Without the action, the FMAP for Puerto Rico would drop to 55% starting on October 1st. Puerto Rico and the USVI received supplemental Medicaid funding, including a 100% FMAP, through disaster relief legislation in the wake of the 2017 hurricanes Irma and Maria. The bill will also have to be approved by the U.S. Senate. 
The legislation is aimed at avoiding a federal government shutdown at the close of the federal government's fiscal year on September 30th by allowing additional time for Congress to reach agreement on a federal budget for fiscal year 2020, which begins October 1. In a press release Wednesday evening, Governor Wanda Vasquez hailed the development and said the extension of the 100% FMAP shows that her week-long visit to Washington, D.C. last week is, quote, bearing fruit. The U.S. House Natural Resources Committee plans to address the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's failure to publish regulations by a congressional deadline that are required for the Commonwealth to begin the process to access a second tranche of $8.3 billion in disaster relief funding. The committee has also scheduled a hearing on October 22nd to address proposed amendments to PROMESA. After a meeting on Monday with Governor Wanda Vasquez, Chairman Raul Grijalva said the issue was a, quote, point of urgency during the discussion with the governor and her staff. Quote, we go back in session on Tuesday and part of our obligation is to go and chase that and to make sure that we are in compliance and we are not in compliance, Grijalva said. The additional supplemental appropriations for Disaster Relief Act of 2019, which was approved in June, required HUD to publish within 90 days allocations and administrative requirements for mitigation activities for all eligible grantees, including in disaster funding appropriations. Puerto Rico is the only jurisdiction for which HUD has not published the information. A senior HUD official told Reorg last week that, quote, Given legitimate concerns with Puerto Rico and ongoing probes to that effect, referring to the ongoing FBI investigations, we feel compelled to refrain from publishing the mitigation notice or entering into any grant agreements with them at this time. The Puerto Rico government's energy market regulator expects to issue a final order on a system operator for the prep transmission and distribution system sometime in the second quarter of calendar 2020, PREB President Edison Aviles told lawmakers at a public hearing on Monday morning. In a timeline of various proceedings provided along with Aviles's written testimony, the PREB anticipates that the structure of the T&D provider and system operator will be set in the fourth quarter of calendar 2019. A, quote, intervention and comments period and PREP revisions would follow in the first quarter of 2020, along with an order for filing and application review. A technical conference, hearing and briefs, discussion and feedback, and final order are targeted for the second quarter of 2020, according to the timeline. Other top stories last week were Filing alert Sheridan Holding Company 2 LLC files for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas. Case summary GCX Prepack contemplates dual track reorganization sale. Proposed $54.5 million dip would be funded by note holders. And Three bills before Congress aimed to curb surprise billing carry implications for physician staffing, air ambulance companies. And, as always, here's Jim Holloway with The Week Ahead. Well, greetings, everyone, from Soggy Houston, and welcome back to the most interesting half hour in the universe of podcasts. So on Monday, September 23rd, there is an omnibus hearing in Verity, and we'll see a lot of that this week, omnibus hearings, I mean, which is where I guess the grunt work of Chapter 11 is done, separate from, uh, you know, the high Shakespearean or Chekhovian drama of the first day in confirmation hearings. And Exhibit A, I guess, if I may borrow from uh, the Blackstone or Learned Hand or whoever, is Tuesday's. September 24th, where we have omnibus hearings in Aceto, Weinstein, Zohar, and P. 
PG&E, and also a, con- a continued confirmation status hearing in FES and a combined plan DS hearing in Halcone. You know, I saw Floyd Wilson, a genuine legendary oil field person, who will admit he has never operated a business within cash flow in Fort Worth earlier this year. He's owned his next thing, which is called Falconer Oil and Gas, and you may have noticed he likes to name his companies after birds of prey. Anyways, on to Wednesday, September 25th, there's an omnibus hearings for Madoff, New Kotai, Ditech, PG&E again, and Samson and a bidding procedures hearing in Verity and a settlement hearing in South Cross. And what do you know? There's even earnings and an earnings-related call from Pier 1, and those are after the close. Thursday, September 26th, there's a DS hearing in Stearns, a UCC formation meeting in Purdue, and a sale hearing in White Star. And brace yourselves, PG&E, the California Public Utilities Commission has a meeting at which they're going to vote on something that affects you. Good luck. There's also earnings from Rite Aid. And on Friday, September 17th, hooray, we made it through another week. After we get through the omnibus hearing in Windstream, the bidding procedures approval hearing in Global Cloud, and in Sears, there's a confirmation hearing. And because I know you're wondering, yes, there is at least one Sears store still open here in the greater Houston Sprawlaplex. It's way up on Shepherd near 45. At least I see people going inside. And that's all from me. Back to y'all. Thanks, Jim. And now here's the Reorg Emerging Markets team on three South American credits. Thanks, Connor. My name is Kyle Obusu. I'm a senior distressed debt analyst with Reorg and team lead for the Emerging Markets LATAM team. And I'm joined by credit analysts Catherine Wiegert and Brandon Liu to discuss three topical situations. The first is Nova Austral, a Chilean salmon farmer. The second is the province of Chubut in Argentina. And the third is Brazilian telecom company Oi. So we're gonna we're gonna start uh, with the smaller, more niche uh, Nova Austral, which has about three hundred million um, eight and a quarter senior unsecured bonds due twenty twenty one. I think trading in the uh, mid forties to low fifties on low volume, and then. We'll move to Argentina, where, where we will discuss Chubut's uh, 650 million seven and three quarters senior secu- senior secured bonds, which are quoted in the low 60s. Um, and finally, we'll make our way to Brazil to talk about Oi's bonds, which are quoted in the low to mid 90s after falling uh, down to the mid 80s, uh, all the way from 105. So let's start with Nova Austral. Brandon, um, let's start from the beginning. What does uh, the company do and what does its capital structure look like? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Nova is a Chilean salmon farmer located in the south of the country. Uh, the company is nested in favorable biological conditions with stable East Pacific and Antarctic waters, uh, low, low bi- lower biomass density and lower farm site density. Uh, the, the capital structure has about $310 million of debt, and it's pretty straightforward. It just has uh, $10 million outstanding on a $50 million uh, super senior cr- credit facility, and like as you mentioned, the $300 million, uh, eight and a quarter senior secured notes. So this uh, the sustainable salmon, um, they talk about it a lot. They, they, they mention that it's raised in, in these pristine and, and icy waters in the Antarctic. I mean, why is that so special? And what, what, what is it about the way that that salmon's raised or marketed or what have you that makes it so competitive in the market? Yeah, so it's an it's extreme southern location, provides 
for sustainable conditions for raising salmon uh, and farming in one of the best one of the best and most isolated regions in the world means that the the salmon enjoy stable lower temperature waters all year long uh, but really sets them what really sets the company apart is their 60 south product which is the company's brand of premium sustainably farmed salmon uh, which are sourced from pure untouched icy cold waters from from the antarctic uh, ocean which allows for raising salmon without antibiotics or pesticides which is the which is the key um, in fact nova australia is the first chilean salmon farmer to offer antibiotic free salmon year-round and this offering has earned the company high praise from various environmental groups and has actually allowed them to receive a special certificate for responsible farming. Um, the certificate allows the company to capture premium prices from salmon consumers. Uh, and a lot of these consumers now are becoming increasingly concerned that uh, the heavy use of antibiotics can produce certain bugs in the fish and uh, historically, with this certificate, the price premium that the company has been able to capture has been between 3% and tw- uh, all the way up to 25% above market prices. Wow. So, yeah, okay. I can understand why they uh, that some people would consider that a, a competitive advantage for sure. Um, and, I mean, the, the, to, to a certain extent, the company is, is, is subsidized, right? So, how do, how, do the, how do those work? Yeah, so the company operates under a contracted government governmental su- subsidy regime in Chile called the Navarino Law, and this means, above other things, under this law that uh, Nova receives twenty percent of its sales in subsidies, and is also exempt from the Chilean corporate tax of twenty-seven corporate income tax of twenty-seven percent. Uh, this provides a substantial buffer for the company, as roughly. 60% historically of the company's EBITDA has come from this subsidy. Uh, and this law is, is set to go all the way through 2035, so another you know, 15 years or so. Wow, 60% of the uh, the EBITDA comes from the, the subsidy, so obviously very important. Um, and can you walk us through the, the org chart, uh, you know, who is the bond issuer and sort of how, how, how does, if I'm buying the bonds, like how does value flow um, in the org chart um, to the bondholders? Yeah, so the, the issuer is Nova, Nova Austral SA. Uh, the company was purchased by a major creditor, Ewos, which is a Norwegian fish feed supplier. Uh, it was purchased for a little over 800 million, uh, sorry, 180 million in 2014. Uh, EWOS is owned by P firms Altor and Bain Capital, uh, and there were, and um, and EWOS was used as a kind of the purchase vehicle to to buy Nova Austral SA, um, which I said is is the bond issuer. Uh, these two P companies created a hold co called Albain, which sits above Nova Austral, um, and sitting below Nova Austral is Commercial Austral, which is kind of its one of its operating sub- subsidiaries which purchases and sells salmon uh, produced by Nova Austral. It also handles sales logistics, manages products in the frozen storage facilities, and also manages all international freight and uh, and customs procedures. Uh, there's there's also between these two um, entities there's a dis- distribution contract between uh, between them for a hundred to sell a hundred percent of Nova Austral salmon. Uh, and then also sitting below Nova Austral is a new smolt plant, which is management has said is supposed to 
be complete uh, later this year uh, called Piscicultura, which Nova Austral owns just over 76% of this subsidiary. Uh, Salmonifera dalgahue, uh, which is another Chilean salmon farmer, owns the remaining 24%. Uh, but this subsidiary sits outside of the bondholder group. So if there is equity value in Piscicultura, uh, that value should flow to Nova Austral, the, the issuer. But since this is a new hatchery project and we, we haven't seen any details regarding financials, um, in our model to, to remain conservative, we don't give any credit to Nova Austral for the um, for the potential equity value at this subsidiary, um, we assume this entity is is kind of ring fenced in and and not involved in um, any restructuring concerning Nova Austral. So our our valuation is just based off Nova Austral and uh, commercial Austral. Okay, got it. So you have the uh, the commercial Austral and the the PC Cultura. Uh, subsidiaries, but the the PC culture is outside of the bondholder group. So you're really just getting value from from commercial Austral, and the the sponsors are Altor and Bain, and they basically bought the company through the the, the vehicle Ewos, like you said, which was the supplier. Um, and and the bonds are secured. So like, what is the uh, what is the bond security? Yeah, so it's it's pretty extensive. Uh, the bonds are secured by mortgages on agriculture aquaculture, concessions, uh, marine equipment, real estate, and all 28 of their operating licenses. Uh, in addition, the company granted non-possessory pledges over machinery and equipment in one of the company's processing plants, uh, as well as certain biomass and breeding centers, uh, and then also a share pledge over more than two, more than 2,000 shares issued by Commercial Austral, which, like I said, is owned by Nova Austral. Got it. Okay, so we, I mean, we picked up this credit in uh, in, in in around July 2018. Um, the bonds were trading in the low 90s. There were there were definitely concerns about um, production as the company continued to adjust its guidance. Um, but then all of a sudden, you know, the, in in June, uh, late June, the bonds sort of fell to the mid 70s. I mean, what what happened? What what what's going on? Yeah. So there, there's been a lot of. Um, allegations against the company in the last, you know, like you said, last quarter or so, starting in June. So there was a report by Chilean, Chilean media company El Mostrador alleging that certain Nova Austral directors asked employees to revise mortality rates downward in order to stay below a regulatory th- threshold that would, that would require the company to reduce stocking uh, for their next uh, production cycle. And, and then Later, uh, about a month later, El Mostrador also highlighted um, two new additional allegations linked to the company. Uh, the first being that board members and both former and current executives uh, were, were frequent recipients of this consolidated weekly report detailing mortality rates and cause of death. So that so all these people were aware of this, uh, and the company also alleged that um, salmon at one of the company's cultivation centers was were in anaerobic conditions uh, caused by the accumulation of sediments that produce produced by feces and uh, uneaten fish food and that and Nova Austral tried to cover this up so basically you know the the conditions for these salmon were, were not uh, not not safe at all uh, which led to higher mortality rates which led to them you know trying to cover that up so they wouldn't have to cut production uh, but these allegations recently have led to a suspension of the company's antibiotic-free certifications, and the company is also facing fines 
and the potential suspension of operations for up to two consecutive production cycles, which is equivalent to about six years of production. Wow. Okay. So where are we now in terms of the story and, and, and more more, I guess more importantly, uh, what do you think is, is, is being priced in at this point? Yeah. So the bonds were actually most recently quoted uh, from, from we heard from our reporter uh, near, near 60. And as you said, production has pretty much been in, free, in a free fall from uh, about 29,000 tons of whole fish equivalent in 2016 down to guidance for about 19,000 tons for this year. Uh, guidance for the, next, for the next year is between 15 and 20,000 tons, which it would represent about a 14% to 35% decline compared to the company's most recent 2019 guidance. Um, of 23,200 23, uh, tons. Um, in late February, management lowered its 2019 harvest guidance from between 30,000 and 32,000 tons to between 26,000 and 28,000 tons. So that that was a you know a, a lower guidance initially, and then it's further gone down to, uh, like I said just over 23,000 tons. Um, so with bonds trading near 60, to get to your question, uh, and, and comparing uh, that to the output of our model, um, investors appear to be pricing in more of a um, a kind of our, our, a mid type of assumption where production is in line with the midpoint of 2020 guidance, which again is, uh, you know, would be about 17 and a half thousand tons for 2020. Uh, and, and investors would seem to be assuming uh, that the company would not lose its subsidy, which is, you know, some people believe could be a possibility, um, and that the company can maintain its premium pricing, which management has said that um, that they're pretty confident that they will be able to maintain that. Got it. Okay. And and you you prepared um, a, a waterfall model for this uh, to try and determine or or estimate uh, bondholder recoveries. Um, so yeah, can you just talk about that? Just walk me through how that, through how you prepared that. Yeah, sure. So so starting from the top in our model, we we don't distribute any cash to creditors because the company just had about two million dollars of cash and cash equivalents on its balance sheet as of June thirtieth, and they've historically kept a very thin cash balance. Um, further, we assume that the company's remaining capacity on its super senior credit facility, uh, which I. I said, like I said earlier, uh, there's currently 10 million drawn down right now. Um, so the remaining capacity is 40 million. Uh, so any of that capacity is drawn in lieu of any dip financing. Uh, so, we, so we value the Chilean salmon uh, farming market and industry using a uh, enterprise value to kilogram of whole fish equivalent multiple, which is kind of the you know the multiple that the standardized multiple that's used for this industry. Um, we we look at four peers: uh, Frio Sur, uh, Sal, Sal, Salmonas, Magallanes, Aquachile, and Australis. Uh, and the valuations for these four companies range from about thirteen times to seventeen times enterprise value to kilogram multiple. Um, and with all, Nova Australia's closest peer, Salmon, in terms of production and harvest, uh, which was Sal- Salmonas Magallanes, uh, was was valued at about 15 times. Um, and this this company was actually acquired by Aqua Chile in 2018, so 
pretty recently, so it's a pretty good comp. Um, we so we use a range, like I said, for a, an EV to k, um, kilogram multiple range from thirteen times to seventeen times to value Nova Austral. Uh, so um, after, you know, in addition to that, we assume Nova Austral is able to capture a ten percent price premium, which is about you know a little less than you know the midpoint of their historical. Um, you know, price premium range relative to market prices. Um, and dur- dur- like I said, I think earlier, the during the last call, the, the current uh, chief operating officer, Francisco Miranda, said he expects the company to be able to retain its ability to price its salmon at, at a market premium. And it, the company is aiming to regain its antibiotic-free certification by, um, by the fourth quarter of this year. Um, and regarding sales volumes, we use the projection given by management during its most recent call for 2019, uh, which I mentioned earlier is, is a little over 23,000 tons. Uh, and then we, we use the midpoint of the 15,000 to 20,000 ton guidance provided by management for the 2020 volumes. Uh, so then, so we model out six different, uh, scenarios um, and and so looking at recoveries, uh, we see that in the absolute, our most bearish bearish uh, scenario, where production declines at ten percent a year, the company also loses its uh, government subsidy, which we talked about. Uh, recoveries would be from um, from about four percent to thirty five percent at a thirty five percent being at, at the uh, obviously the highest. Um, part of that range for, for that scenario. Uh, and then if, if we go to our most bullish, um, scenario where the production actually grows, the company keeps its subsidy, uh, recoveries would range from 38% to par, uh, with the midpoint being at about, uh, you know, in the low sixties, which is, uh, you know, just a little over where the bonds are trading right now. Uh, and then I guess in addition, if production stays constant, uh, I think, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the recoveries would range from about thirty percent to eighty-two percent, uh, with with the midpoint being around fifty. Um, so, so again, you know, we 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 model quite a few different scenarios, um, and just given the degree of uncertainty right now, uh, we 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 come up with you know a pretty wide range of recoveries. Got it. That's uh, that's that's pretty interesting analysis. And so you know, just looking at the 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 sort of top two um, more bearish scenarios with the bonds trading at trading at uh, like you said at around sixty, or you're sort of forecasting like forty points of of, of downside there um, versus the the um, you know the the forty points of upside in your your absolute uh, bull case scenario. So. I mean, it's it's definitely. Uh, I can understand why it's a, a difficult situation for investors to analyze, for sure. Um, so, I mean, how much how much um, debt in in a restructuring do you think that this company can sustain uh, if 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 we assume production say stays constant versus um, if production in 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 the worst case if production declines and this company loses its subsidy? Yeah. So so in our mid mid-case scenario where production stays constant uh, along with 2020 guidance and the company is able to maintain its 
10% pricing premium, which we're assuming. Uh, terminal, terminal EBITDA at the end of a five-year uh, cash flow production is, uh, is about $30 million. And so this translates using the multiples to an enterprise value ranging from between 40 mil, 140 million to just under 300 million. And we estimate that a restructured company can carry about 110 million to 230 million of debt at an at a LTV uh, loan to value ratio ranging from uh, 78% to 82%. And then if the company loses its Navarino loss subsidy in, in a more bearish scenario, um, and production declines 10% annual, annually, which is actually a more conservative um, decline, decline rate than, than what the company has actually been experiencing over the last three years. Uh, terminal EBITDA is about 10 million uh, at the end of our production period. And using that same LTV method, we estimate the restru- restructured company would be able to carry about $75 million of debt under a mid uh, mid-case valuation and LTV of eighty percent. Got it. Got it. Okay. Cool. So, what 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 should we uh, what should we look for next? Um, what are the what are the next events um, that investors should be on the lookout for? Yeah. So, on September sixth, Nova Austral came out with a uh, release saying that its twenty twenty production guidance figure would depend on the level of stocking allowed by uh, by relevant authorities. And the company said it would be receiving these stocking figures in the in the coming weeks. So, so we're looking for an update on that. But there's a chance we might need to wait until the next earnings report um, and earnings and the, you know the earnings call that follows to to see what those stocking figures are. Um, and then management said also that it can't provide 2021 guidance because those harvest figures will depend on on stocking. Um, on the stocking in 2020. So, you know, going through our model, I mean, all of the our projections and and recoveries are, are really you know driven by that production figure. So, um, so that definitely will is that that's that's a big thing that we're we're waiting on to see for right now. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the company is hoping to regain its antibiotic-free certifications. Uh, for for its fourth quarter production, so um, so I think their management seemed pretty optimistic that they could get those for fourth quarter fourth quarter production, and um, and that will allow um, the company to regain that um, that higher pricing premium for um, for their products. Uh, so now, uh, if if I think we can, I think that pretty much is a wrap on Nova Australia, and we can pivot to Argentina. And the uh, the Chubut province. So so Kyle, we see that Chubut is uh, is located in Patagonia, in Argentina. Uh, why why is the province strategically important? Based on data from the Argentine Ministry of Energy, Chubut has more oil production from 2016 to 2018 than any other province. So it's it that's why I think it's from that aspect, it's it's definitely strategically important for the for the country. Got it. And and there have been a lot of headlines about oil price freezes lately in Argentina. What's what's the latest with that? On August 15th, the Argentine government put in place price controls there at, at exchange rate levels uh, of ARS USD um, of 45.19 and $59 per barrel Brent crude reference prices. 
and then the government increased the original established price control exchange rate levels on August 30th to 46.69 and a fixed rate of $59 per barrel so that that remained the same but the the um the uh, ARS USD exchange increased um then on September 16th the Argentine government issued a decree um permitting the payment of subsidies for compensation um, as, as compensation, sorry, for, for the price controls. Um, so for the month of September, um, according to this decree, about $2.06 per barrel would be transferred to oil producers for oil sold in the, the local market, uh, which is actually an important um, point to bring up is that the, these price controls apply to oil that's being sold in, in the local market. Um, in, a, in exchange for receiving the subsidy, the, the oil producers agreed not to sue the, the national government for implementing the price controls. And then about two days later, the government authorized a 4% increase. Uh, you had the, inter, the, the um, widely reported attack on the Saudi Arabian uh, oil infrastructure facilities. And so that led to a spike in the price of Brent crude. And the, the I guess the Macri administration was forced um, in, a, in a sense to, 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 to put in place an increase there. So they increased 4% for the price of gas fuel and 5.6% increase per barrel uh, for the price of crude oil for the producers. Got it. So obviously these, these um, price freezes have, have taken a big toll on, on producers. So if we take Argentina, Argentina's largest producers or two of their largest producers, Pan American and YPF, how could this impact uh, each of them? So YPF's 2018 annual report um, explains that it exported about 12% of its of its total production, um, and so it stands to benefit more um, from these these subsidies, um, given that you know most of uh, you know crude oil exports. Um, were only six percent um, of crude oil produced in 2017, and so for I think for that reason, because it it, it relies less on um, because it relies less on exports um, and more on the local market, um, and and the subsidies uh, primarily affect local producers. Uh, YPF stands to benefit more. Um, whereas Pan American, um, I mean, information on this company is few and far between, but uh, is reported to to export um, around thirty percent of it, of its crude oil production, um, and so any of the subsidies that 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 would benefit the local the the, the producers that rely more on local production, um, Pan American wouldn't be able to benefit from those as much. But on the flip side. Uh, Pan American wouldn't be hit as hard um, by uh, any of the price freezes. Got it. So, so speaking of Pan American, I've I think I've seen that the bonds issued by Chubut that are these are these bonds are secured by oil and gas royalties that Pan American actually pays to the province. Uh, can, can you kind of walk us through how that works and, and the structure of those bonds? Yeah, so Chubut is the the issuer. Interest is is paid quarterly, and the bonds mature July twenty sixth, twenty twenty six. The the principal amount of the, the notes are going to be amortized over over twenty four quarterly periods starting October twenty sixth, twenty twenty. The notes are secured by a fiduciary assignment of an assigned percentage 
of uh, Pan American Energy LLC's royalties on a first lien basis uh, pursuant to um, what's called the the Argentine Trust Agreement. Uh, Pan American Energy's, uh, just to put it in context or try try to, um, produced uh, 133,000 roughly barrels of oil equivalent per day. Um, sort of on an, on an LTM basis, and it roughly, you know, just over 65% of that production uh, was oil. Um, additional security, you've got various uh, coll- uh, Argentine collateral trust accounts, um, and then various uh, debt reserve um, debt reserve accounts in New York. Um, so, essentially, at a, at a very high level. Um, the way that it works is the, the, the royalties are sent to the Argentine collateral account, um, and then from there, they're, they're, they're supposed to be converted um, into USD uh, and then paid, um, depending on the, the level of funding in the debt reserve account, either paid to the debt reserve account or to uh, the payment account, which are both established in the United States. Um, and the idea is that you have enough in the um, the Argentine you have enough coming into the Argentine collateral account uh, that that you can you can continue to service your debt over time. Got it. So so just to to make sure I um, you know understand this as a bondholder, I get assigned royalties and and there should be enough cash in my payment account or debt debt reserve uh, debt reserve account in order to make interest uh, and amortization payments. Um, but I don't have security over the hydrocarbons or reserves or any any of the, those assets. Uh, is there anything to protect me if if there are not if the royalties you know aren't sufficient to serv- to service the debt? Yeah, and I think that's 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 the big risk here, especially with the 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 the, the idea of price freezes. Um, is that if they, if 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 there are price freezes, you could see you know a situation where you don't have the royal the royalties at a level where you can service debt, and the the documents um, have sort of three different provisions to I think address this. Um, that one is a prepayment event, um, and so that occurs when the reserve adequacy ratio um, is is less than. Uh, one time and uh, a production ratio, which is essentially um, a, a royalties interest coverage ratio, if you will, is over two and a half times. Um, and in that instance, um, essentially 50% of, of all ex- excess collections are, are, are deposited in an account and those funds are used to pay down the bond. So, so basically, um, if you have uh, the production ratio. So if you're producing um, over a certain level, but your reserves are actually being depleted, um, you have a principal pay down. The second is a trigger prepayment event. And uh, that's going to work very similar to the prepayment event where excess collections are used to, to pay down bonds. But in this instance, uh, instead of 50%, all of the, the excess collections are used to pay down bonds. Um, and it's triggered uh, if the reserve adequacy ratio is less than the one time, so if your reserves um, get to a certain level, get below a certain threshold, or um, your royalties coverage ratio is less than 1.35 times. So in that instance, um, if your your royalties coverage, if your royalties are too low, um, 
there's a bond paid on mechanism. And then finally, if there's an event of default. So if your royalties coverage um, is lower than 1.1 times, that, that's an event of default. Got it. And, and so that's all good, good info on, on the background of you know, the structure of the bonds. Uh, do these bonds have any collective action clauses? Yeah, so there's a 75% threshold to amend the key items uh, such as principal due, maturity, coupon due, um, and, and various other key items in the, in, the, in the bond documents. Okay, and then how would I re- enforce if I had to? So I think that's, that's really the tricky part. Um, the, the Argentine collateral trust, um, which is the trust that you know, initially holds the proceeds. Um, so the, the royalty is the actual cash that's coming out of this, um, this, this, the, the, this structure, if you will, um, that is governed by Argentine law and enforcing contract rights against the province. Um, this is all according to the, the offering memorandum, uh, would depend on, um, successful enforcement action before the Argentine Supreme court. So, I mean, you know, of course, there's there, there's always um, probably ways to to get around these things, and I'm not we're not we're not giving any legal advice, obviously, but it does sound um, obviously like like that is a a hurdle um, in terms of like actually enforcing on your rights if it comes down to that. Great, and on that note, we will pivot to Brazil. Um, as we know, Oi is the largest fixed telephone operator and fourth largest mobile telephone um, company in Brazil. Um, In 2016, you had the filing for RJ in Brazil. um, And through that process, the company cut leverage um, by by facilitating a debt for equity swap um, and raised uh, much needed funds from uh, various investment management companies in order to compete uh, in Brazil's telecom market. um, the floating rates, the floating rate notes, the take back paper, if you will, due 2025 have been, have been very volatile lately. Um, they were trading around 105. Um, then they traded all the way down to the low 80s by the end of August. Uh, you know, what, what's going on? With over 65 billion reais in debt, Oi was the largest ever company filed for bankruptcy proceeding in Brazil. There is little precedent for companies to emerge from these proceedings and continue operations, but Oi managed to reach an agreement with its bondholders after almost two years of negotiations. The terms of the company's restructuring plan are well documented, but Oi bondholders essentially received 20 cents on the dollar of uh, reais denominated cash pick bonds and up to 75% equity in the restructured firms. Conditions for a a 4 billion reais capital increase and entry of an enforceable order in, in both the Chapter 15 and the Dutch bankruptcy proceedings with respect to the debt for equity exchange, pro forma net leverage of around two times compared with 6.7 times before the bankruptcy proceeding, a free cash flow inflection point. Um, OI has stated that it expects to generate unlevered free cash flow again in 2021 with CapEx averaging around one times depreciation and amortization over the course of 10 years until 2027. And then OI has also said that it will bundle services uh, to increase the average revenue per user or ARPU. Upon emergence from the bankruptcy proceeding, OI's bonds traded well above par, reflecting the company's ability to overcome its financial distress and emerge from the, pre- the proceeding with a substantially improved capital structure. Investors were also hopeful at the time that management could quickly implement a strategic plan and sell non-core assets and potentially the entire company to provide investors with a feasible exit. 
In the second quarter, however, uh, OI disclosed yet another decline in revenue and routine EBITDA, along with negative free cash flow and higher than expected capex for the year. Management had previously guided for approximately a 7 billion reais in capex for 2019, but last month the company said it will likely spend around 7.5 billion reais in capex this year. Cash and cash, in, cash and cash equivalents as of the end of June were also less than 5 billion reais. Clearly, from an operational perspective, very little has changed, and investors are disappointed with the company's performance post-reorg, and we've seen that reflected in the defrauding prices of the bonds. OI's enterprise value to EBITDA lags its peers. It has fallen from about 3.4 times at the end of July to around three times based on the company's current share price. The average multiple for global telecom companies, however, ranges between six times and, seven, and 12 times EBITDA. For OI to sell itself and for investors to exit their investment, the company clearly needs to improve its multiples dramatically. Got it. So, it, I mean, it seems like the bonds uh, have, have have at least recovered a little bit. They're they're bid around ninety four, um, or at least they were the last time I looked at at prices. Um, have there been any notable events since the end of August? Yes, absolutely. Earlier this month, Brazil's Senate passed Bill PLC 79-2016, which seeks to deregulate the telecommunications sector by switching from a concession model to a private authorization process. This will support investment in communities based in the outskirts of Brazil, OIS primary market, and make it easier to sell real estate and mobile spectrum. These initiatives previously required government approval. Um, if President Bolsonaro signs uh, this measure into law, telecom companies will be able to sell assets in the open market without having uh, to cut through uh, the regulatory red tape. Um, now, what this means for OI, this development is actually pretty crucial for the company for a number of reasons. The company has a wide-ranging network and, the sale, and a sale of any kind of an operating unit or multiple operating units or even a sale of the entire company will inevitably entail the sale of a land and spectrum assets. Uh, during its uh, bankruptcy proceeding, OI sought to find a strategic buyer, but it was unable to do so. The passage of this bill would support a future transaction. Um, secondly, this bill will help OI execute its strategic plan, which, as I stated before, entails the sale of assets. Um, and uh, the company basically needs to sell its assets to improve its cash position and to invest in key initiatives, which includes the rollout of a fiber network. OI's transition from an antiquated copper DSL network, uh, which represented about 90% of its network in 2018, to fiber technology is crucial to uh, improving the company's revenue, EBITDA, and cash flow generation. If OI executes a strategic plan carefully and if it can, con and if it can consummate the sale process of various assets, I think we'll see a substantial movement in the stock and in the company's enterprise value multiple. Yeah, speaking of the uh, the strategic plan and the asset sales, I mean, from what I understand it, this is like a very catalyst, uh, heavy story. Um, you know, what should what should bondholders and and, and investors be on the lookout for, uh, both for the remainder of 2019 and then also in 2020. That's a good question because there's a lot going on. Uh, first and foremost, investors need to monitor the company's financial performance. Under its restructuring plan, OI has pledged to turn cash flow uh, uh, to turn uh, free cash flow positive in 2021, which will be coming up quickly, considering uh, the company and considering everything the company needs to accomplish between now and then. Investors should review OI's quarterly earnings carefully to watch for any inflection points. Is OI turning a corner? Are we getting closer to closing any? 
deals that will either restore the company's cash position or generate proceeds that could be reinvested in the company. That latter question leads to my next point. The bill passed by the Brazilian Senate is important. How long will it take for Bolsonaro to sign it into law? Once it becomes law, Anatel, the telecom regular, regulator, will have a year to implement the measure. Uh, we need to know. We need to know, or we need to find out what this means for Oi. Uh, will the company be able to sell assets as Anatel is implementing a new law, or does the implementation have to be completed first before Oi can consummate any meaningful divestment? Um, we also need we also need to be mindful of any changes of management that might alter the timing of any key initiatives or rollout of the of the strategic plan. Oi's largest shareholder, Golden Tree, has sent two letters now advocating for the replacement of the current CEO in favor of an executive with more operational experience in the telecom sector. We'll have to see how this plays out, but undoubtedly, uh, a change in leadership could have a change in strategy. And lastly, investors should monitor the pace of divestment. Um, OI has said that it plans to sell various towers by the end of the year and data centers in the first half of 2020. The company has said little about its, the status of the Angola subsidiary, but the company has indicated that it is advancing on the sale of that unit too. The market will definitely have to monitor any formal communications from the company to assess the progress of this deal and others. There's speculation in the market that OI could also sell its mobile unit, but the management hasn't articulated any plans to do so in the near term. Um, early next year, OI is also expected to participate in a Spectrum auction. We'll see if they do. Given their dwindling cash position, uh, the company will have to be judicious about the price it pays for Spectrum. If the company is unable to participate, we can expect the value of the mobile business to decline, which would undermine the value of the asset in a potential sale scenario. Got it. Wow, that that sure is a lot. Um, all right. Well, that's been uh, that's been great. So just to, to wrap up, we had uh, Nova Austral, where we're going to be looking for some clarity on the company's production. Um, Chubut, where we'll be uh, monitoring Argentine politics and the potential impact um, on of uh, any intervention on uh, the economics of the uh, royalty payments. And then finally, with Oi, uh, we'll be looking to see if the company. Uh, executes its asset sales, will be paying attention to governance issues, and then, of course, uh, the, the Spectrum auction. We'll be anxious to see uh, how that plays out. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all of our podcasts on our site's media page, plus iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelding. Reorg.